there's no consolation prize for losing in the Stanley Cup playoffs, especially not when you go out in a manufactured preliminary round to a 24th seed in a 2014 tournament. But I'm going to try to find something here for the Penguins. Good morning to you. Good Thursday morning. I'm Dan Kovacevic of DK Pittsburgh Sports and the newly reborn DK Sports Radio Podcasting Network, which we hope you will access through automatic downloads on Apple, Google, Stitcher, Spotify, Overcast, Anchor, everywhere that you can find podcasts. Auto-downloads are your friend and ours. The Montreal Canadiens, for the overwhelming majority of you who have tuned out the Stanley Cup playoffs, beat the Philadelphia Flyers 5-3 last night up in Toronto, forcing a Game 6 and avoiding elimination. The odds are still very much in the Flyers' favor despite their robust history of playoff failure, it'd be awfully hard to lose three in a row to get eliminated. But, but, there's still something to be said for not just how the Canadians have competed in this series, how they've fought back, uh, how close together They've played both systematically and character-wise through this series. It's also about who has played well. In this game, Nick Suzuki, the kid you'll recall who made that blistering shot over Matt Murray's glove and generally acquitted himself really well in the series against the Penguins, was outstanding. Yoel Armia had two goals last night. He was terrific all through the series against the Penguins. Brendan Gallagher is omni-bleeping present. It's like a shift can't go by without you noticing Brendan Gallagher doing something out there. Thomas Tatar has been really good. Shea Weber has continued to be dominant. And Carey Price has just been Carey Price. He's been the best version of himself. All of these names should sound very familiar to you, even if you haven't watched any of this series, because they were the same names we were talking about in the Penguins' four-game elimination. To me, there's something to be said for that from the Pittsburgh standpoint. Generally speaking, when you lose in what's perceived to be an upset, and in this case, actually, obviously was an upset. And the Penguins go in with almost their full roster, everybody healthy, all their best guys healthy, Jake Gensel back, uh, all the motivation, you would think, the belief, feeling it's realistic that they could win a championship, while the other guys, the Canadians, as I incorrectly expected, we're supposed to come into this and think, hey, man, we're in the playoffs. This is cool. Let's just like hang around here for a little bit and see what goes. Not what happened. And it's not what looked like it happened in that preliminary round. Montreal was really, really determined, and they were tight. 
and to watch them compete as they have, as diligently as they have, not just against Pittsburgh, but against the Commonwealth's other team, and to show those same traits and those same characteristics, I'm sorry, but to me that actually takes some of the sting off the Penguins losing. Maybe not the sting. Let me try to rephrase that. I think it takes some of the stink off the Penguins losing. There, is that better? It still hurts for everybody who follows this team that they're out. But maybe it's just not so awful that they went down to this team. And what I think is going to be most instructive about this and most meaningful moving forward is that Jim Rutherford, ideally, hopefully, and based on what he told our Dave Molinari earlier this week, I think it's practical to presume that he's going to stay calm through this. He's not going to freak out. He's not going to blow up the core. He's not going to say this team needs a complete transfusion or anything. Because there's a very real possibility And my friends, this is something we were talking about for months leading up to the return of sports, all through the coronavirus shutdown, would be that you'd have some teams in some sports that were going to come back unexpectedly readier than others, unpredictably, in better mindset, in better condition, whatever it happened to be. And that has been borne itself out. Absolutely in the hockey playoffs it has. Each of the 12 seeds in the two conferences in the preliminary round advanced. Don't forget Chicago beat Edmonton too. And the Oilers were supposed to be all that with Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl and everybody else. You don't react. You don't make major seismic franchise-shifting decisions based on something that happens over the course of a week. I believed that when I saw the Penguins get run out of the building by the Islanders, and I'll definitely stick to it in this extraordinary circumstance. When we come back, I'm going to do some baseball, and it'll be a lot less pleasant than this subject. Indians last night at PNC Park, 6-1. to one. I don't know how long the current losing streak is because I'm not sure where this losing streak ends and the one before it begins. The Pirates are now 4-16. and 16. One-third, exactly one-third of the way through this 60-game season that everybody... <laughs> was afraid was going to be too short, and now it feels like it's going to be eternally long. 4-16. and 16. It's the worst start for the franchise since the 1952 team. Not at all affectionately referred to back then as the Ricky Dinks, put together by general manager Branch Ricky. 
just a disastrous roster for the first half of that decade was Ralph Kiner and just a bunch of nothing around him. That group was 3-17 and 17 through 20 games. This is some horrific baseball to watch. And by that, I'm not even talking about the way you usually think about bad baseball. It's generally related to fielding miscues and doing things that are comical and embarrassing. What's just awful to watch with this team, and most consistently so, is the offense. I can't stand it. Like, I find something else to do when the Pirates are up. You know? Like, I have the, I'll have the, the TV on, or if I'm over at the ballpark, obviously I have the game quote-unquote on in front of me. But when the Pirates are up, I, I just tune out. You know, you know nothing's going to happen. I've been covering this team for a long time, and I've been following it for a lot longer than that. I have never seen an offense like this. And as fair as I find it to bring up that the Pirates have had 11 injuries and still do have 11 guys out, six of those are pitchers. The pitchers are the ones that have been hit by far the hardest. And yet you watch this game last night, and other than the incredibly, eminently predictable blow-up by Davidis Nevarowskis, that was pretty much it. The rest of the pitching was fine. Stephen Brault was fine. Jeff Hardley was fine. Uh, most everybody else they brought in was okay. Nevarowskis was a disaster. It doesn't matter. And they can't hit. And there's no excuse for those guys. What's the excuse for Brian Reynolds to be looking at pitches right down the pipe like he did again last night? What's the excuse for Adam Frazier to be at a buck sixty? You know, I mean, he's always been streaky, slumpy in the past, but not a buck sixty. What's the excuse for Josh Bell continuing to flail at pitches, low and away? I mean, it's not just that the book is out, JB. They're writing the book in giant neon letters atop Mount Washington for everyone to see. They're just going to pitch you low and away, and they're going to keep doing that for as long as you keep fishing. Awful to watch. Awful. I didn't even mention Gregory Polanco. Polanco, <laughs> he's got three hits and 44 at-bats. There's nobody, there's no regular player in Major League Baseball with numbers like that. And yet, who are you going to sit him for? You know, I mean, you can say, well, look, anybody can hit 0-5-0 or wherever he is right now average-wise. But you're also paying the guy more than you're paying anybody else on the roster. And if you were lucky and you're Ben Charrington, Polanco would have gotten hot at some point, built up some kind of value, and they could have moved him. He doesn't have any future in Pittsburgh. He wouldn't have had any if he had been the most explosive player in the league had he started out. It just would have meant a better return. This is confounding. Uh, 
I get the reflexive responses that most of the public has to the, when the pirates struggle. Pirates stink. Low payroll, they stink. It's, it's not that simple. It's not that simple. The pitching, to repeat myself, has lost half of its staff, three of them being starters. There's nowhere to hide from that, especially not with the minor league system that Neil Huntington and Kyle Stark left behind. But the hitting... I'm sorry, you could be the biggest cynic related to the Pirates anywhere in town, and you'd never have predicted that every hitter except Colin Moran and, of all people, Eric Gonzalez were going to be Mendoza or lower a third of the way through the season. This reflects terribly, first and foremost, on the players. I, I hate when people will just f jump on coaches right away when there's some kind of common denominator. It's, it's never most prominently on the coaches. Brian Reynolds, as an example, very much had within his control to come into this season a lot more fully prepared than he clearly is. That's on him. The same thing goes for Bell. The same thing goes for Adam Frazier. The same thing goes for Kevin Newman, although he's starting to look a little bit better of late. Not great, but at least something. Still, you do have to look at the coaches. Maybe they aren't at the front of the line, but as the saying goes, you can't fire all the players. Rick Eckstein did some amazing things with this group last year. Same names. Same names. Just throw in Starling Marte, too, who had a wonderful season for the Pirates last year. By the way, still hitting really well for the Diamondbacks. Rick Eckstein did some great things with these guys, and they would describe them very vividly for me, some of his practices and philosophies, and it sounded so good, and it looked even better when they were out on a field because they were making it happen. Pirates were sixth in the majors in 2019 in batting average. Did you know that? Not in the National League. The whole major leagues. Pirates were sixth out of 30 teams in batting average. They weren't necessarily the most powerful team or whatever, but they put the ball in play, and they ran the bases, and they scored runs. Mostly the same guys as what's here. Some differences. And I mentioned Marte. Corey Dickerson was with the team early last year. Francisco Cervelli was in and out of the lineup. But for the most part, it was still driven by Newman, Reynolds, Bell, Frazier. And all that's left on this team offensively is Colin Moran, who isn't, like, he's not hitting great. He's, he's hit a handful of home runs. And had a couple of timely hits, which you like, but it's not like he's Rod Carew right now either. This team has to get better. No excuses for the hitters. The pitchers have their excuses. If the hitters regress, the people who are going to pay the price for that aren't going to be the hitters. Trust me on that. It's going to be the people who were charged with making these players better. That starts with Derek Shelton, but it does include Eckstein and the rest of the coaching staff. 
and they're going to be the ones who get put on the hook for this. Remember, Charrington and Shelton have been saying the same two words since back even before spring training won in Bradenton, that their goal for the 2020 Pirates is to get better. They use either the words get better or getting better, constantly, back and forth, get better, we're getting better. The goal is to get better. We want to be getting better. They're getting worse. These are their best players. They're getting worse. And not a little bit, like a lot worse. They're some of the worst position players right now in all of baseball. This has to be solved. And sooner rather than later, I really believe that. When we come back, football, because football is happy. hates when a rookie gets hyped up in an NFL training camp, feel free to fast forward to the ads at the end of this program because I'm about to go there. I am. I feel like I don't have a choice, especially since the Steelers and the other 31 teams don't have a preseason and since I saw some things I liked from the rookie class this week at Heinz Field. This segment of Daily Shot is always brought to you by the Greater Pittsburgh Community Food Bank. During normal times, one in seven people in our region are food insecure, including one in five children. Not knowing where your next meal is coming from can be scary, and now, with the pandemic and everything, the need for food is that much greater. If you are in need of food assistance, or if you would just like to support the Greater Pittsburgh Community Food Bank, visit Pittsburgh foodbank.org spell that out those first three words pittsburghfoodbank.org one dollar can provide enough food for up to five meals and if you go there today you'll see that there's a special that'll take that dollar that much further the Steelers I don't think are going to be able to keep Anthony McFarland off the field I really, I, I swear I'm not going to take this too far. But I also feel like, you know, when you're watching NFL preseason games, they're basically, uh, more than anything else, a showcase for running backs, you know, because no one likes to pass too much. You don't start doing that until the third quarter. And even then you bring in quarterbacks that you don't want throwing the ball, game manager types, clipboard holders. So you just basically turn around and hand the ball to a running back. So a running back is going against a bunch of guys who aren't going to make the team that they're playing for. They're going to be bagging groceries, a lot of them, within a couple of weeks. So the running back looks great, runs through everybody, and everyone's talking about that running back. Hey, start that running back who played in the fourth quarter last night and gained a million yards. So we're missing out on that. The Steelers should have had five preseason games, then it was cut to four, then it was down to two, and ultimately it ended up, of course, at zero. So we're robbed of all of that. We are robbed of an entire five weeks and change of what I am certain would have been Anthony McFarland hype. And I was going to be there for it. I said this when they drafted him as the fourth round pick out of Maryland. After watching in its entirety his 
utter annihilation of Ohio State while he was with the Terrapins. 200-plus all-purpose yards just just crushed them. They had no answer for him. They tried everything. And we're talking about, you know, one of the better college programs around. He was doing that through a bunch of NFL draft picks. He's exciting. He has the kind of speed that the Steelers haven't had, at least not among any significant participants at the running back position since, I don't know, Fast Willie? I mean, you have to go that far back? I don't know. When you watch this kid, and I did carefully this week at Heinz Field, he doesn't just hit the hole. He hits it, and then he falls in love with it, and he wants more. I don't know how else to word that to you. I know that sounds hokey, but he sees daylight and just wants more. How often have you seen a running back that when they find that daylight, either through a great blocking scheme or a good decision they made up at the line, they'll find that hole and then they're kind of like, whoa, what do I do now? This kid doesn't do that. He just wants more. He's looking for the big play. If you ever heard the saying, football coaches love to say this, that every play they design, every run play that they design is designed for a touchdown. They hate when you suggest to them that so-and-so play was designed for short yardage. No, no, no. They're all designed to go to the house. I don't believe that either, of course. I mean, fourth and one plunge, you know, out at midfield, you're not looking for uh, for six points out of it. But the philosophy is great, right? And this kid has it. He wants to score touchdowns, regardless of where he is on the field. And I'm sure there's something to that because throughout his football life, he's been able to. The NFL is obviously going to present a very different challenge. But to watch him, there's nothing about him that looks remotely uh, intimidated by the setting by the circumstance, by the people that he's facing. There just isn't. Um, While there and talking to a couple of football people that I've respected forever, maintaining our safe social distancing and all that other stuff, they said they couldn't take their eyes off him. They, They loved everything that they saw. He's visible in more ways than one. He has this long hair coming out of his helmet, so he's not hard to miss. He's not one of those where you have to wait for him to keep running to see the numbers on his back to figure out who it is. You know who it is right away, so that helps to make him visible in a training camp environment, but there's more to it than that. Uh, In addition to his running, he also looked pretty comfortable in the pass-catching drills that they had. They weren't the most challenging drills, but again, he didn't look like it was something that was completely foreign to him. Now, I can say all this and try to get everybody excited and say, well, this is going to be the guy they use to spell James Conner, and that's, how, it's, it's, that's not how it's going to be. You're going to see some mix of Conner, 
Benny Snell. I don't even know about Jalen Samuels. I, I don't know what they're going to do with him. I, as I look at what they have right now on this roster, and unless Jalen Samuels is going to be some special teams ace of some kind, I, I don't even know that he's going to make the team. I know that's going to surprise some people, but you can't live off the New England game forever. This kid is going to make an impression when he gets on the field and he gets his touches, especially if he's used in the right way. One fun way I've had in my head for a while is to go with that two tight end set out there, have Eric Ebron, Vance McDonald, force the other team to bring all their bigger, slower chess pieces out there and then have this kid just go squirting through everybody. That'd be fun. But he is getting out there. He is... I'm not allowed to talk about who's taking what reps, so I won't. He's visible. There, I'll say that. <laughs> okay? <laughs> you notice him. He is not being cast aside. Uh, Mike Tomlin has acknowledged that on the record, so I can acknowledge it here per the NFL's reporting guidelines agreement with the Professional Football Writers Association. Certain things we can and cannot say about specifics of practice. You notice this kid. Uh, you want him to have the ball. And I think you're not going to be disappointed in that regard. Once the Steelers get to real games beginning on September 14, this kid almost has to be part of it with one catch. If you're going to play running back for the Steelers, and those of you who are longtime fans can finish the sentence for me, better be able to block because if you're out there they don't care if you're Barry Sanders if your quarterback ends up flat on his back so the ultimate test for McFarland is going to be how he handles that how does he convince the coaching staff in particular the head coach that he's going to be responsible enough to make sure that Ben's back is protected at all times but it's exciting. It's exciting. It's good. It's happy. Unlike the other stuff I was talking about earlier, this is good. This is happy. Thank you so much for listening to this show. I appreciate it. We'll be back tomorrow. Your front door. Your car. Your gym locker. Your gun. Safety is a habit. Learn more about how to keep guns safe and secure. Visit projectchildsafe.org.